Well, it may come in an email or you may see a Facebook post and it's a headline telling you something like this, that using Tupperware in the microwave causes cancer or be careful when traveling in South America. You may wake up in a hotel room missing one of your kidneys or there's more. You put a tooth in a bottle of Coke and it'll be gone by morning or one of my favorites, Mr. Rogers was actually a Navy SEAL. That's why he wore a sweater to cover up all the tattoos. A friend of mine was the director of the U.S. Mint uh, for about five years, and suddenly he began to get reports that the new presidential dollar coins that the Mint had issued had removed the words, in God we trust. And he was just flabbergasted because he'd been involved in a process for a couple of years of designing these coins, and he knew the words were there. They were just on the side, on the rim of the coin, not on the front, and suddenly he was in trouble. But he couldn't stop the rumors. They just kept spreading. It was impossible to stop them. You probably know the term for all of these kinds of things. They're called urban legends. It's a belief or a story or a bit of folklore that gets passed around as fact. And sometimes it's easy to sort out fact from fiction. But other times, the urban legends sound so plausible that they spread quickly without being questioned. And once they're out, they're almost impossible to refute because just everyone knows that they're true except they're not. With the internet and social media, these things can get spread quickly. I once worked in an office where, for some reason, we had a number of people who would see these kinds of things, and they would send out an email blast to everybody on the staff, alarming headlines like huge alligators living in the New York City sewers. And I would go check them out. I found out there are about a half a dozen websites you can go to, places that have vetted all these things, and I would find out that most of what was sent around wasn't true, so I would send out a reply all and just make certain that everyone knew what was going on. So the organization actually came up with a policy that you could not forward or send emails, forward emails like that around to the office. I don't know if you've thought about it, but there are also what I would call spiritual urban legends as well. These are things that sound good, they contain a bit of truth, but in the end they can lead astray. And most of them are harmless, but others can lead us into dangerous error that can give us spiritual heartache. In some cases, they live, lead to disillusionment with God for failing to fulfill a promise he really never made, or false guilt that God never intended us to feel, or give us false hope that simply cannot be supported by the God we find in the Bible. In the next few weeks, we're going to tackle seven of these spiritual urban legends. The hope here is not to embarrass, but to inform. And frequently, what we'll find is that the reality, the truth, is much better than the myth. In the end, though there is more peace in knowing what's real and what is not. So our first spiritual urban legend, the one we're going to take up today, is this. And that is, the safest place to be is in the center of God's will. The safest place to be is in the center of God's will. Now, the way that many people understand this idea is that obeying Jesus makes you bulletproof. It gives you a sort of immunity from the troubles that others, especially those who are less diligent than you, might experience. So let me give you an example. Two weeks from now, I won't be here. Um, I'll probably be somewhere rounding a corner from around St. Thomas onto Summit Avenue on my way toward the state capitol because I'm running the Twin Cities Marathon with my oldest daughter. This is going to be my fourth marathon, and I have to tell you my first was a number of years ago when I was in my 30s. Then I was nervous. I heard about concepts like hitting the wall, which is when you get to about mile 20, you experience a sudden loss of energy and extreme fatigue. I heard about people collapsing and having to be rescued by medical personnel. 
And having never run further than 13 miles, I just signed up to run twice that far. So I was anxious and I wanted to be ready. So I joined a running club. And this club met twice a week. We met on Saturday mornings for long runs. I think we began in July or in June with a 10-miler. We eventually got as far as 24 miles in the middle of September. And then we met on Tuesdays, and we would run, and then we would have a lecture from somebody who had some expert uh, who would talk about an aspect of marathoning, from nutrition to taking care of injuries to clothing to strategies for how you run your first marathon. To copious notes, I did everything the instructors said. And on the day of the marathon, I woke up, and it was unseasonably warm. And if any of you know anything about marathons, you know that marathoners like cool weather. An ideal temperature would be about 55 at the start and 62 at the finish or something like that. But that day, it was going to be hot, so I, but I was prepared. I knew that I needed to drink extra fluids along the way. I knew that I needed to take a shorter, a little bit uh, slower pace, so I ran about 10 to 15 minutes slower than I'd initially planned. And by the time I was up onto Summit Avenue with four miles to go, I was blowing by people who were blowing up. And uh, when I came to that last half mile where you just come over a little rise by the St. Paul Cathedral and head downhill toward the finish line in front of the Capitol, I was practically sprinting. It was just a great experience. Now, let me just say, it, it, it did hurt. Uh, I walked like an old man for a few days. Um, I didn't run for another week. So it isn't like it was painless. But I was prepared, and the experience made it much better than it would have been if I had not joined that club, if I would not found the advice. Now, what some people think is that when they hear a statement like, the safest place to be is in the center of God's will, I wonder if they're trying to do with life what I was doing with the marathon, and that is try to avoid unnecessary suffering. And as far as it goes, that can be a wise thing to do. And I know what some of you are thinking. Now, along the way, someone may have said to you something like this. If God created us, wouldn't we want to follow his instructions? In fact, sometimes people go as far as to call the Bible God's instruction manual. Now, in some ways, that's true, but I think ultimately the metaphor breaks down. Instruction manual thinking is based on the assumption that if you just do everything the correct way, everything will work out. Conversely, if you rebel, rebel against God, live a life that violates the values, principles, and laws of the Bible, there will be consequences. And the consequences may be not only spiritual. They may be physical, relational, and emotional. And let me just say that in many ways that can be true. But that doesn't mean that the corollary is also true, that obeying God's plan makes us immune from hardship and difficulty, that learning and obeying God's ways means that life will always be smooth and trouble-free. So I hate to burst your bubble, but sometimes obeying God leads us straight into difficulty. Now, what happens is when that happens, if you've been fed this idea that the safest place to be is in the center of God's will, you begin to question whether you properly discerned God's will. You wonder if you've been mistaken, whether you ought to change course and do something um, differently. I've been there before. Let me just give you one example that I'm actually gonna talk a little bit more about next week. But when I was a senior in high school, I thought briefly about joining the Air Force. I took this test. I did really well. The recruiter started calling me every couple of days. He wanted me to take the physical, suggested that I could start with basic training right after I graduated from high school. And the problem was is that I didn't really want to join the Air Force. But I thought, you know, well, sometimes God asks us to do things that we don't want to do. And so I belabored this. I thought about it. I prayed about it. The clock was ticking. Graduation was nearing. The deadline was coming. And I finally decided not to join the Air Force. 
Now, um, the guy that uh, the recruiter told me that if I ever wanted to reconsider, he'd be glad to, to help me, and you know, I never called him back. But, and you might ask, well, was I relieved? Well, sort of. I didn't want to join the Air Force, so in that sense, I was relieved. But I also wasn't completely sure that I knew exactly what God wanted me to do. In fact, for several years, anytime things got tough, I'd go back to that decision and wonder, you know, maybe if I joined the Air Force, things would be working out a little bit more smoothly. What I now see is that I had swallowed a lie, or at least a half-truth. What I would later come to understand is that the safest place to be is in the center of God's will, just isn't taught in the Bible, at least not in the way that I believed at that time. So how did I figure it out? And the answer is by reading the Bible. The more I read the Bible, the more I realized that even the greatest heroes in the Bible seem to be constantly in trouble. For example, God sent Jacob and his family all the way to Egypt to avoid a famine, and they spent the next 400 years, especially the end of those 400 years, living as slaves in Egypt. Then God asked Moses to lead the people of Israel to the promised land, and he did. But it wasn't easy. I don't think there has ever been a less appreciated leader than Moses. First Pharaoh and then the people made life very difficult for him. And in the end, even God himself gave Moses some grief. And then if you want to continue forward through the Old Testament, you find the prophets, people like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, and they experienced difficulty. In fact, several of them were told, you know, you're going to go to the people and tell them what I want you to tell them, and they're not going to listen to you. That's it. You're going to be a failure. Think about that. Go, go obey God and be a failure. Now, you might ask the question, well, did some of these folks miss God's will? It's possible, although if you read at least the accounts of these stories, they didn't. And then you've got the New Testament. You've got Jesus' disciples and even Jesus himself. If anyone should find a safe place at the center of God's will, it would have to be Jesus. But right off the bat, at the beginning of his public ministry, he had a tough time. 40 days in the desert without food and the devil tormenting him. And it didn't necessarily get better from there. In the end, the one who obeyed God perfectly found himself nailed to a Roman cross. Now, how's that for perspective? Those of us who call ourselves Christians follow someone who was beaten, mocked, and ultimately executed. So reading these examples over time made me more and more aware that I needed to rethink this idea about being at the center of God's will. I shouldn't be surprised if I decide to be rebellious or make a foolish decision to find myself in hot water, but I no longer expected that just obeying meant that there would be smooth sailing. I understood now that there was a cost in following Jesus. In the years since, I've realized that it's important to get this one right, and here's why. If I had continued to believe, as I did then into my late teens, that obeying God granted me immunity from problems, any time a problem came, I would begin to question whether I'd discern God's will properly or adequately. And it would make me even perhaps question whether God was unfair just because a difficulty entered my life. What I now know is that being in the center of God's will can be sometimes the wildest and most dangerous place of all. Obeying Jesus may lead us straight into the teeth of difficulty. So over the years, I've known people who have had spouses leave when they decided to follow Jesus. Others who've been passed over at work for a promotion because they decided to draw a line and not cross an ethical boundary. Others who've given up riches or comfort to do something difficult that God wanted them to do. And some of those people are you. You've obeyed God, and instead of smooth sailing, what you've found is that you've experienced difficulty. So I want to take us back to the Bible, and I want to look at a, at a case study, at an example of 
how I think this idea can be called into question. And the example is the person of St. Paul. Now, what we're going to look at is something that Paul wrote about himself, about his life with Christ, and it's in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 24 to 28. Let me just read what St. Paul wrote about his own experience in following Jesus. He says this, Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. That means no lifeboat, nothing, just treading water. It says, I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in dangers from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I've labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Now, here's the deal. St. Paul is one of the most important Christians who ever lived. He obeyed God, and look at what happened. And yet, despite those difficulties, he didn't flinch. He expected it. He even saw it as an honor to suffer for the sake of Jesus Christ. Here's how he put it just a chapter later in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, uh, 12, verse 10. He says, For Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, I'm strong. And he's saying, I'm strong in Christ. And St. Paul wasn't the only one. Just a few years before, Peter and some of the other disciples got in trouble with the religious authorities in Jerusalem. They'd been healing people and teaching about Jesus in the temple courts, and the authorities dragged them in, took them into custody, had them arrested. And some of them wanted to put the disciples to death, but a Pharisee named Gamaliel intervened. He said that if the disciples were operating from human motives, they would quickly fail. But he said if God were empowering them, they could not be stopped. And he was persuasive, at least from abandoning the sentence or an execution, but what they did with the apostles was flog them and order them not to speak in the name of Jesus. So what did they do? Well, here's what it says in Acts chapter 5, 41, verse 41 and 42. It says, The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. That's the name of Jesus. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. So I don't want you to think that automatically following Jesus means that you're going to experience extreme hardship and being danger. That's probably unlikely. But experience tells me, and the biblical examples certainly illustrate, that following Jesus can lead to difficulty, hardship, and suffering. And Jesus didn't sugarcoat it. Here's what he told his disciples about a month or so before the, the last week of his life, the, the week when he would lose his life. In Matthew chapter 16, here's what he has to say. He says, it says, Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good is it will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come into his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. So if it isn't true that the safest place to be is in the center of God's will, what is true? And here's what I would suggest, that even in difficulty, God is with us. 
One of the major differences between Christian faith and other world religions is the Christmas story. And you might say, why? Well, here's why. The Christmas story tells us that Jesus, God's son, was once up there, and now he came down here. As St. Paul once put it, he said that Jesus gave up the privileges of heaven to join us here on earth, to live among us. It's a bit like checking out of the Ritz-Carlton and going and staying in a Super 8, only much more so. And no other religious tradition says anything like that. All religious traditions have moral codes, often very similar codes. Islam, for example, is similar from Christianity in one sense, and that is that it talks about a God who is distinct from the world. But only Christianity has a God who is not only distinct from the world, but at the same time ready to enter the world and be with us. That startling truth is that in Jesus, God became one of us. So why is that so important? Why is it so significant? And the reason is, is because now we have a God who can relate to us. He's not detached. He's not aloof. Instead, he can totally identify with our experience. He entered our world. He accepted our limitations. He made himself vulnerable. He exposed himself to our temptations and experienced the bitterness of sorrow just as we do. And in the end, he was tried, he was mocked, he was spat upon, he was condemned, he was flogged, he was crucified. It was a, he was the victim of gross injustice. In this, he bore our sin and he died the death that we deserved on the cross. Now, all that tells us is that Jesus sympathizes with what, us when we suffer. He understands what it feels like to obey God and find that we have more trouble, not less. It's in this that I think we can find hope. Now, other world religions promise to lead you to a God up there. Buddhism has a God who's detached from suffering. Hinduism postulates a detached, impersonal conception of of a deity or deities. But the Christian God entered the world and suffers with us and for us. Only Christian faith has a God who promises to be with us in the midst of our difficulty. Now, that doesn't mean that he's going to deliver us from every calamity, at least not in the moment. But we know that in Christ, God is with us and will not abandon us. Only Christian faith offers us a God who will join us in our pain. Life may not be safe, but here's the benefit. When God is there, there is joy. That's the benefit that comes from following Jesus. When I started working on what I would say today, I I did a little Google search of the phrase, the safest place to be is in the center of God's will. And I don't know what I expected to find, But what I was surprised is to find a name attached to this phrase, a name attached as the person who said these things. And the the person was a woman named Corey Ten Boom. Now, that name may not mean anything to many of you, but a few of you have heard of her before. And if you've heard of her, you're probably surprised that she is the source of this quote. Let me explain. Corrie ten Boom lived during World War II in German-occupied Holland, and she and her family were Dutch Christians. They were involved in a movement who resisted the Nazis and were responsible for rescuing almost 800 Jews through an underground network of homes, safe houses, where they could keep them. But just after midnight on February 28, 1944, the Gestapo burst into the ten Boom home and arrested the whole family. Uh, Corrie's 84-year-old father was put into prison and died there shortly after, and Corey and her sister Betsy ended up in a concentration camp. Later that year, in 1944, Corey watched her beloved sister Betsy die uh, with these words on her lips. There is no pit so deep that God is not deeper still. There's no pit so deep that God is not deeper still. Now, you think about that. The originator of this phrase, the safest place to be is in the center of God's will, 
did not understand that as a promise that God somehow made us immune from suffering. Corey Ten Boom lost everything to follow Jesus. Her father, her sister lost their lives. And Corey didn't live a safe life. Instead, she felt safe in knowing that there was no pit so deep that God would not be with her, whatever she experienced. Choosing to follow Jesus requires trust. At times, it means leaving the safe and the comfortable to pursue the difficult and the risky. When we do, we don't base our belief on the idea that God's will depends on results, that somehow God is gonna make everything work out just perfectly. Rather, we obey knowing that no matter what happens, we're encompassed by God's love and that he is there with us. That's what we can find hope in. Let's pray. Father, may we diligently seek your will and when we find it, absolutely, let us obey. And when we face difficulty, may we not be distracted from continuing to obey, remembering that no matter what we face, you promise to be with us. For there is no pit so deep that you are not deeper still. May we find hope in that to carry on. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.